Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we are going out to learn how Warren Buffett does all that cool stuff and make billions of dollars. Oh, I like that one. You like that one? Yeah. And also, let me introduce you properly, because it's been about two years <laughs> since I did. So the other person you're hearing is my daughter, Danielle, who is a very, very, very lovely and wonderful person who I love and who I've been trying to get to learn to invest from me for quite a long time. True? True. But you wouldn't, would you? No. No. And instead, you went on to college and you got a degree from Wellesley in comparative religion. And well, then in you religion. Graduated. In religion. In religion. Yeah. Then you graduated and there were no religion jobs. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to learn more about religion. And Thank so you, you went to much. Oxford. So I went to Oxford. And got a degree in... Religion. Religion. Came out with a master's degree in religion and, uh -huh. oh, still no jobs about religion. There are totally jobs in religion, but I didn't want to you do them. You didn't want one. That's right. Okay. And then you went clerking for a friend of mine. So I thought I was interested in law. Yes. Just because to... you wrote a paper about it. Yes. Do you want me to say it in like a normal way? No. Okay. And then what happened with Rich? Kramer. I liked law. You fell in love with law because yeah. of Rich Kramer. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Well, okay, Rich, he's, he's if you're wonderful. listening to this, yeah, he's wonderful. you are incredible. And he's a Superior Court judge in San Francisco. And then you decided to apply for law school. And you got into NYU Law, mm -hmm. which is pretty heady stuff. It's right? a great law school. And then you went to your first month of law school. And you called me up and you said, Dad, I think I'm just going to party all the way through law school. Is that, would that be okay? That's not what happened at all. It is. <laughs> what fantasy land is that That from? was it. You were living in my that apartment in New York happen. City, partying no. through law school. Yes. Yes, I threw the best parties in you law school. You did see there. But that is not the same. There. Now the truth As working extremely out. hard at law school and throwing parties. Both two things can be true at the same time. <laughs> So you got done with NYU Law, and then you went over to some unpronounceable country. Yeah, God, this is really in-depth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went to Oman and worked for a law firm there for about six months, thinking I maybe wanted to do international Middle Eastern-focused law. Yeah. And fell in love with companies and working with companies. And so many international companies are, in Oman in particular, to develop new things there, and they were very entrepreneurial, and I loved working with those people. You started drifting into my world. <laughs> not really. Okay. <laughs> and then you came back and decided you're going to not quite be done with school. So I decided I really wanted to go and work with companies and startups, and I did not know that before. I hadn't taken any classes in that area in law school at all. So in order to be ready, yeah, I went back to school. I got a one-year master's in entrepreneurial law. So here we go. Bachelor's in religion, master's in religion, JD, master's in emerging corporation law. Yes. And you began to practice with a really good law firm in Boulder, right? Yes. And then what happened? And then... I got exhausted and burnt out and sick. Oh, yeah, I forgot and, about that part. Oh, what were you asking? I thought you just, oh, and I decided I wanted to invest. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, can I get into that in a second? Can we first tell all of our listeners why they're hearing people laughing? Oh, oh, yeah, right. It's not a soundtrack. Yeah, no. We are live at your workshop, Dad. In Atlanta, Which Georgia. we've been talking about on the podcast for a long time. That's right, that's right. And I parachuted my way in from Zurich, and we're doing this live podcast in front of everybody. So. Can we put pictures of all these people up on the website with the podcast? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Can we? Yes, we can. All right, I'm going to take a picture right now while you talk. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, so I, yeah, so I was practicing in a big law firm and I absolutely loved my clients and my work and my colleagues and working at a big law firm means a lot of hours. And I know a lot of you in here are very aware of that. And so I just started to get sick, like physically I started 
throwing up randomly. My hair was falling out. I got fevers out of the blue, like the weirdest stress responses. And I was on all these pills, and I had to go to acupuncture every week just to like exist. And, um, and I was a mess. And so, of course, my dad knew I'd been telling him this stuff, and he said, again, for the 50,000th time, you need to learn how to invest. And I was like... Which is the cure for all that ails you. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Basically. I think that is what you think, actually. <laughs> and so I, I was trying to figure out how to, like, still do this work that I loved, but not be so dependent on my salary. Like, that's not a good feeling to have no other options, to not be able to leave your job if you need to. And I felt like I couldn't leave my job, even though I needed to. And so finally I said, okay, fine. <laughs> Give me some idea of what this thing is. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to stick with this in a million years. So, so I started teaching her, and it was really brilliant, is what she means. And it was so brilliant, <laughs> but maybe just going a little too fast. I don't well, know. Well, yeah, but that was after we started the podcast. No, no, then we started the podcast to slow it all down a little bit. No, you didn't teach me anything before we started the podcast. Uh, that's, that's true. Am I misremembering yeah. this? No, you're right. I forgot. We started the podcast because you wouldn't listen to anything I, I said. Because I knew that we wouldn't talk about <laughs> you it. You wouldn't listen to anything I said. And I think to this day it's true that we wouldn't talk as much as we do if it wasn't that we have this have commitment to, to people. <laughs> Because there's so many weeks where we're like, oh, we got to talk to each other. Okay. And it's not just... like that. <laughs> it really sounds bad. But then once we start, then it's great. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What happened? I'm losing my microphone. You still got her um, on the phone? Okay, there you go. So we did the podcast, and the podcast turned out to be amazing it, for a lot of different reasons. One of which is that Danielle has a really, you got just this really um, good way of digging in on me that nobody else does. I, I think you, you don't like, you don't mind just tearing up ideas that I have. No, well, I learned from the best. Oh, well, good. So, did, oh, I meant that as a compliment. <laughs> so what we started to see happen in the early days of the podcast was that I would say something and you would, really dig in on what does that mean and it doesn't mean what you say it means and it's got to mean something else and you're like over and it turned out that a whole bunch of people were asking those same questions in their heads that you were asking me yeah because here's here's what i think happens is that you become an expert on something and then you give your perspective from this like expert level and you don't remember what it's like to be this total beginner and I would say even with you, because you're so naturally good at it, like you maybe never had that beginner experience. Like a lot of the stuff I go through, I think you don't actually. Yeah, I think that's I don't true. think you went through it. And that's totally fine. Like that's amazing, right? But those of us who are less gifted in the investing realm need to go through these things. And so I think that's why I just ask the questions from a really <laughs> not naturally good at this perspective. And that brings out a lot of um, detail. I, I knew we were onto something really amazing when a guy who's a maybe a 50-year-old construction guy, he's all tatted up, definitely outdoor working guy, shows up out there and um, he comes up to me and he goes, man, I've been listening to the podcast, that's why I'm here. He said, he, said, he just looked right at me, he goes, Danielle is me. <laughs> Which is the best compliment I could have ever asked for. And I thought, wow, man, a lot. This is covering a lot of territory here, this thing. <laughs> so maybe we should keep doing this. So um, what do you say we take some questions? Yeah, I'd love to. I think so, too. All right, here we go. Thanks for the barbecue. I'm Scott Siley from Fullerton. Phil, since you've been doing this full time, what's the longest time, amount of time you've ever gone in between making a stock buy? Not oh, the longest time between buy. a stock buy. Okay, well, you guys know that um, I got on CNBC in 2007 and said, I'm out. Um, this is way too hot of a market, and I'm getting out. And I got all the way into cash there, 
And I didn't come back into the market for uh, 19 months or something like that. It was a long time. Now, in between there, I was doing some trading. So there's never been a really long time without just actively creating some cash, right? But in terms of buying a company, it can be, I've, I've done 19, 20 months at a time with nothing, right? So it can, it can be a long time. And, and obviously, I tend to get out a little bit early um, because the companies that I own will go up and be at a rational, reasonable uh, retail price, a sticker price. And then if it's a really hot market, they're just going to keep going up until they get really stupid high price. So, for example, Chipotle that I bought in 2009, that went to 550 and I was like, wow, this is crazy, right? 1,000% return. And I got out, and then it just kept going, another 40%. Oh, my God, that's torture. I know. That's horrible. And you have to just sit there and just go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Something that really bothers, has bothered me when I first started was that I didn't buy anything for a long time. And in fact, and you guys who have read my, our book, Invested. Um, our book. Our book. <laughs> Seriously, our book. Oh, you thanks. guys don't even know how much work he put into this book. It was incredible in the midst of everything else he does. And, um, and so you told me when we started working like that you were teaching me not to buy anything for at least a year and I thought well then how do I learn about investing like the whole thing is that you buy right and you were like just you were so Yoda you were like just wait and then so I would I started working and learning and practicing and friends of mine would say you know what are you up to on the weekends and I'd be like I got to spend you know because I worked a lot so I was like I got to spend like an hour learning investing stuff and reading about companies and they go oh what do you own and I was like nothing I, I haven't bought anything and their eyes just kind of glaze over and that's the end of the conversation because as soon like for people who don't get it as soon as you say I don't own anything they don't take you seriously immediately like you're not a real investor because this image that's been put out there by the financial world is buying and trading and owning lots of companies and you're active and you're watching the market and you know what happened today in the market. I rarely know what happened today in the market. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't even know it was crashing the other day until you texted me. <laughs> so, and I like it like that. So. This is good That's right, work. thank you. Good work. Um, so what I wanna say is don't let people like that influence your practice. Like, this is for us. This is personal. And don't let anybody try to push you to buy something before we're ready. Because, first of all, lots of things are overpriced right now. And secondly, you got to be ready. you got to be able to put your own name behind a company and say, yeah, I'm going to proudly proclaim that I own that. And until you're ready to do that, don't buy anything. So that was a really hard step. That was a really hard <laughs> step for me to realize that I was on like a different path than all these other people I knew who like knew about the market. Well, I have a question. Please. That, that leads me to, which is you've kind of come up in this process with this idea of a practice, right? And sort of, it's like it never struck me like that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Because, you know, if you play football, you practice and then you go do the game, right? You do it for real. Okay. And so the idea that you're always practicing, um, I didn't. It didn't immediately strike me, but it's a really interesting idea. So go into that a bit. Oh, I never thought about it like a game. Like you practice and then there's a game. That's interesting. I never thought about it like that. I think about it like an ongoing um, journey of discovery, of learning, of education, and there's no goal. There's no end. There's no game. And so by thinking of it that way, which I think I came to almost immediately because I could not figure out any other way to wrap my head around it, this, this thing. Um, it became accessible. It became okay to be a beginner. It became okay to not know everything. It became something that's about the journey and the daily practice rather than getting to some level and then stopping, because that's definitely what I would have done if there was some goal out there, I would have stopped. 
Yeah, and what struck me about that was that all the people that I admire who are in this Rule One family never stop growing and never stop learning. You mean like gurus? Like, the like gurus. other investors? Yeah, like you were at the annual meeting with Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, and Warren's buying Apple Computer, and Charlie goes, yeah, he, he just keeps learning. <laughs> Which I loved because I also don't like Apple Computer. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's, it's and Walt, I, I never forget that Walter Schloss, who was a student of Ben Graham's back in the 50s with Warren, but is like 10 years older than Warren, Walter had this huge rate of return for all the years he invested, and he was still getting better at 96, and then he had a week where he didn't practice, and then he died. Yeah. Well, and that's why these <laughs> so guys... So don't stop practicing. <laughs> <laughs> that's why these guys do it till they die, because they love it. It's not, it's not work. It's not work. It's, it's a really a... wonderful part of their lives that can't be separated from the rest of their lives, and that's, that's how I've found a way into it. But that's... This, I never told you this before, actually. But when you were a baby, you weren't exactly a baby, you were about four, I had achieved this goal of mine to make over a million dollars in five years. You were about four years old when that happened. Nice job. Thank you very much. Starting with my pretty much nothing. And I got there. And then I thought, you know what? I, I'm just gonna, I got to the goal. This is interesting because oh. you're saying there's not a goal. And I had this goal I wanted to get to, right? There's going to... It's a whole different world that I'm going to live in. And I pulled up stakes out of San Diego, and I took you um, and your mom to a meditation community in the middle of Iowa, and I was done. I was, hey. Yeah, you didn't, you weren't really working. I wasn't working. <laughs> I wasn't working. And it was like, oh, now what I do, right? And it, it, it honestly, the idea that this is a practice is something I, I've got now because I think a lot of what you've taught me. I think that. you come to it because, because we have a meditation practice, which you taught me then, and I've, we've both done for a long time. And, but it's like any other practice, like yoga practice, law practice, like any other kind of practice where you, there is a goal. Like, yes, there is a goal. Our goal is all to take care of ourselves financially really well. Yeah. And our families and have choices in our lives. That's all of our goals. But by taking it away from the goal and focusing it on the experience, we actually get to the goal. It's just a different way around to it. And I think one way to know you're in a practice, you wouldn't know this till later, but if you're in a practice, it's something you don't ever stop because you're just in it. You love it, right? Yeah, exactly. You love practicing yoga. I love riding horses. I'm never going to be ever done with it, right? I'm never going to arrive at a place where, oh, okay, I now know it all. And this practice is like that to me. I mean, I've done this for 30-some years. And it's like that to me now, oh, which, man. like, who knew? Sometimes I get up and I'm like, who am I? This thing is crazy. Like, I wake up and I'm like, oh, I get to, like, read about Abbott, this weird healthcare company that I discovered. I'm like, and then I'm like, what, what just happened to me? <laughs> this is so alien. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's take the next question. Hi, uh, my name is Ifti from uh, Vancouver. Hi, Ifti. I have a question for Phil. Um, so how has the podcast and doing all that changed the way you teach Rule 1? Has any of Danielle's involvement changed the way you teach Rule 1? Oh, yeah. Huge. You Great are all, question. Yeah, you are all the beneficiaries of the podcast and all the things I've learned from Danielle um, as we went forward in, um, in making it, in making it clearer, right? And making it clearer. Like for example, the 10 cap stuff that we're teaching now, that comes out of the podcast. That was from me being frustrated that I couldn't make it simple to do the margin of safety analysis and, and the, the payback time thing. Payback time you sort of got. Margin of safety has always been an issue. And I thought, look, it's really simple. You just get a 10% yield on the purchase price that you buy. And you're like, what's a yield? And here we go, yeah. right? <laughs> but so much of how we teach now, the form that you guys have that you're working off of yesterday, uh, yesterday for building that talk, 
a ton of that stuff comes from me working with Danielle on the podcast and realizing, wow, I'm over here and she's over here and I'm not communicating properly. And the book too, right? And then comes the book. So the invested book. Because I think is, we talked about it a lot on the podcast, but it was very like yeah. all over. Then we wrote the book and the book is a manual for this class, right? How many of you guys have read the book? So did that prepare you for this class or what? Yeah. If you hadn't read the book, how would you be doing right now? Would you be a little bit lost on where the heck are we, right? So, all right. Hi, my name's Barry. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Hey. Uh, I watch your YouTube videos, all, all of them. So You watched all of the, the YouTubes? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's how I came here. Nice. How many other people are here because of the YouTube videos? Oh, fantastic. You guys know we've had it. One of them went a million something. I saw one that you had that was 1.7 million. 1.7 million views of one video. And another one that we did two weeks ago is at 700,000 right now. So, yeah, it's words getting out. Yeah. Okay, fire away. Well, my question is about debt uh, in a company. Uh, I, 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 I watch Warren Buffett, and he... I th I'm pretty sure what he says is you need twice as many assets for how much debt you got. So half the debt. But then I found out through you, three times earnings is another way of looking at it. But my problem is I'm in love with this company, Pattern Energy, but it's got 10 times earnings. So I'm wondering if... Uh, there's good debt and there's bad debt. There's debt that makes you money. And then there's bad debt that doesn't serve any purpose. But is it like a bank where they acquired bigger debts or? Lots of stuff in there yeah. in that one. Debt kills. That's the first thing. So be very wary of any companies that are carrying any significant debt. It's just as dangerous for them as it is for you. All right. And while there is good debt and bad debt, the good debt is complicated. So be very, very careful if you're starting to evaluate a company like an IBM or a Deere where they carry a lot of good debt, where they're financing a lot of the purchases of the equipment that they sell, because that's a dangerous game. You finance it all and then they don't pay you, you're in trouble. So you really are running another business there where you're financing stuff. And John Deere has an entire arm that's dedicated to just financing tractors. And boy, they better know what they're doing, right? So you need to know what they're doing, which means you need to understand that world. And man, that's, a, that's hard for me. That that's becomes a very high bar. So I, I really don't distinguish much between good debt and bad debt. I just pile it up there and it's too big and I don't want it. Um, so what good debt is their financing equipment and things, and that maybe they can make it work. Bad debt is where they're taking on debt where uh, they get to be where you, you're going to have to go years to pay it off. And so my favorite amount of debt is zero debt. And let me tell you the difference. When I'm looking at a company like a Chipotle Mexican Grill and they have zero debt, my confidence level that they're going to be bigger in 10 years goes right through the roof. Because how are you going to knock them out? How are you going to put this company out of business if they have no, no debtor that they have to pay to force them into bankruptcy? So no matter how bad the recession gets, no matter how bad the depression gets, Chipotle is going to keep on trucking because they're a positive cash flow, positive earnings, positive free cash, and no debt to kill them. And often I have to let go of really good ideas of companies I think are going to be great but they've piled on the debt, and I get scared. And because I have been badly burned, uh, believe me, about debt that I just didn't see coming. A company that I was invested in didn't have any debt or not much at all, and then they started loading up debt for a construction project, building a plant. And I was so caught up in the plant and how huge it was going to be that I forgot that this debt's real, even though it's temporary construction loans, right? And son of a gun, if that, that pile of debt didn't take him into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, right? And I'm, we're in a lawsuit with these guys, by the way. We're going to try to put them in jail. 
because I think they defrauded us as, as investors, right? The debt shouldn't have done what it did. But I learned a really important lesson that even when you don't think it's a problem, it can bite you in the butt and you can never see it coming because the management team of any corporation, if they get in trouble, they can use that pile of debt as an excuse to get rid of you. They can unload the shareholders, all of us, just by going in with a hedge fund and walking into bankruptcy chapter 11 and wipe out the shareholders. It's done every day. I couldn't believe it when it happened. So it made me ever more concerned that any company I own, I really have to understand what the debt is, how they're servicing the debt, what they put it on there for, if it makes sense and so on, right? So we're looking at Dollar Tree today earlier. They piled on the debt to buy Family Dollar. All right, so this could be one of the classic screw-ups that, that management teams ever do is to buy some big company and then not be able to absorb it, not be able to pay off the debt, not get the synergies between the two companies that they thought they were going to get. And what they got out of it was, wow, we're twice as big, so we should get paid twice as much, and we should have twice as big a jet. And if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. That's exactly how those think. Excuse my French. So... <laughs> Let's get bigger, so why? I can have a bigger salary, I can have a bigger jet. And that's crap. So I'm very nervous about debt for any reason, okay? So let that me help? ask you about that. Okay. You, if you're looking at a company that has debt, but it's under the threshold, then how do you feel about that? Like, does that freak you out? They have debt, let's say, I, I'm pretty comfortable with two years, right? Three's on the edge, four's too much. So looking at a company that has $100 of debt, I need to see that they've got like $50 of earnings or free cash flow coming in, preferably free cash flow coming in every year. They can get rid of that debt in two years and we're good. So is it a zero sum game where it's like, I'm freaked not touching it or totally fine, two years, good to go? No, I'm freaked, but I'm going to dig in and see if it's okay. I don't like any debt. So like knowledge and research yeah. is the antidote yeah. to yeah. the fear. So what are the, some of the things you have to look at when you're looking at debt, right? Especially now, you guys, right now, huge, big deal. I'm so glad you said this. This is a little bit advanced, right? We're doing three days of training. I'm going to push you into a little bit advanced here in the podcast. When you're looking at a company in this kind of interest rate environment, we are at the bottom of 30 years of reducing interest rates um, until they got to zero. Now, they don't go much below zero. Then they start to go up. And we are at the beginning of a new wave now of interest rates starting to go up. The Federal Reserve is not lowering interest rates. They're raising interest rates. And if they continue to raise interest rates, corporations that borrowed this money for two years, they, right, or, or it's two years of earnings, how long before they have to pay it off? Is it a year from now? Is it five years from now? What are they going to use to pay this off with? What if they borrowed the money at 2% and interest rates shoot up and now interest rates are at 8%? What happens then? Can they well, borrow I don't understand the, money? the issue. Like, isn't that always true? Interest rates can change anytime. Right. Isn't, isn't this But which way are they going to change now? This isn't like a shock, right? That interest rates change. So isn't this built into the how do you deal with debt sort of square? Well, the catch with debt is can you refinance it? Because corporations don't get to borrow debt like you do when you buy a house. They don't get 30 years worth. Right. They get You want to know three literally years. how long until this debt is due. How long till this debt's due and where do I think interest rates are going to be when we get there? Oh, that's a whole new thing. That's interesting. So that starts to be an, a thing, right. right? So if we're looking at they're raising the interest rates a quarter point every quarter, that's a point a year. We're three years out. Hey, guess what? You're at 6%, 7%, 8 depending on the credit worthiness of the corporation. Uh -huh. Well, hey, baby, that's a lot more money than 2%. But it might be fixed rate. Oh, it'll be, it, it, it could easily be fixed rate, but it's going to be an 8, not a 2. No, I mean, if they have it, if they got it now. Oh yeah, I'm assuming. Like, but you got to know that. No, I'm assuming it's staying good for three years. But this thing comes to a cliff at three years. It's not like your house. It's not so easy to refinance a corporate loan. Your house bank believes in you. You got a lot of equity. 
you got a job, you're still going to get your house refinanced. Corporation, they could just say no. They could be in a recession right there. Their earnings are going down or going negative. And all the banks just go, no, we won't do it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And bam, all of a sudden, you're in Chapter 11. Mm -hmm. That is horrible. So I want you to be really careful with debt. If you're not sure, no. Too hard. Okay? Love it. Okay. Good. The too hard box is my favorite box. The too hard box is my favorite box, too. The rule on the too hard box is you want to get stuff into it as quickly as possible. Right? Why waste your time if you can see that it's too hard right away? So don't make the mistake of starting into something and it looks really hard and thinking, oh, but I'm going to figure this out. Just assume right away it's too hard. Dump it and move on. You need... How many companies in a lifetime? How many? 20. And how many do you have to get really right? Four or five. So we're going to dump almost everything. Might as well dump it early and then just go play golf. That's better, right? So we're, we're out to do an investing style that's laziness bordering on sloth. <laughs> yeah. I also think too boring is very important. Too boring is very important. I am important. not interested in, let me just state a, a tautology. I'm not interested in something that's too boring. <laughs> All right, You're fine. bored by something yeah, that's too boring. Exactly. Yeah, um, I got it. Let's take the next question. Hi, uh, my name is Brandon from St. Louis. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm, my job is in the technology industry. I went to school for technology. I'm passionate about technology. I don't have that many other hobbies. If, if I insist on, on investing in technology companies, or that's where I feel like my, my biggest relative understanding is, what lessons do I need to learn quickly or what rules do I need to follow if, if I'm going to um, have success knowing, knowing I want to invest in some technology companies? So, he would like a different set of rules. Yeah. I'm a little confused by the question. I was waiting to hear what you were going to say about. What different rules can we have for technology? All right, so here's the rules. Real simple, guys. There's no industry you can't invest in, okay? It's all fair game. Here's the rule, though. You've got to have a high degree of certainty that that thing's going to be more productive in 10 years than it is today. That's the first rule. Second rule is, you got to know what it's worth so you can figure out if it's on sale. So since that gets really hard with technology companies, maybe the best thing to do is use a 10 cap. Right? You look, get the owner earnings, times 10, that's your purchase price. Wait for a huge fluctuation, then decide if your company is going to eat it and go down or whether this thing is going to come through it okay. A great technology company like any great company, will use these recessions or fluctuations to buy out its competitors, to watch them go under. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett just says, that you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Well, the tide is a recession and it's coming. And some of those technology companies don't have the staying power, right? But a good one will, and they'll be bigger when the recession's over. So those are the two things I would focus on, which of course are the two things I'm going to focus on every other company as well. But the 10 cap is where it's, it's, if you apply the margin of safety analysis to a fast-growing company like a tech company, you're going to end up with a very optimistic valuation. And I'd like to steer you away from that. And if you think, wow, I'm never going to buy a company, I'll never be able to get a Google or an Apple or a Facebook, all three of those were on sale within the last five years on a 10 cap. Apple was an 11 cap in 2017. An 11 cap, just last year. So, yeah, the question is, can you say it'll be bigger with a high degree of confidence? And if you can, you're good to go. The, the problem is, for most of us, we just can't make that call. We're, that's not our area of expertise, right? But so I know horses a little bit. You might know hockey, man. I mean, I don't know. You, it's just, what do you know? What are you comfortable with? So don't, don't be, don't, my answer is don't shy away from technology because I shy away from technology. Oh, man, you, you're your own man. You, because I don't like it doesn't mean anything about the value of that business. We don't make up our mind about something because somebody else thinks something. 
one of the parts of being a great rule one investor is to you, you make up your own mind and you stand on it and you get comfortable with it. And that's hard for a lot of us, right? You got to learn that. You got to learn that just because everybody says you're wrong doesn't mean you're wrong. When you, we first started talking, you would tell me that Buffett just refuses to touch tech companies at all. And therefore, you refuse to touch tech companies at all. And you recommended that I refuse to touch tech companies at all. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. I'll do that. And over time, it occurred to me that every company these days is a tech company. And this was ridiculous. And Buffett is, sorry, but super old and probably... <laughs> For some reason, we've been through that today several times. Oh, really? <laughs> and so probably he just, he, he's, not, he's not getting into something he doesn't understand, which is 100% correct. But I can probably understand it in a different way than he does. So you're exactly right. If that's your circle of competence, stick to it. Yep. The critical thing, write this down. <laughs> There'll be a, I should list a, a list of things called the critical thing. And then there's this or huge list. write this down. Yeah. yeah. Or write this down. Is what makes us really good at this is knowing what we don't know. As opposed to not knowing what we don't know. If you don't know what you don't know, you end up getting in big trouble. Because you think you know something you don't know. And that's really easy to do with a lot of different companies out there. So really try hard to recognize what your limitations are. Be humble, or this business will make you humble in a really terrible way. So be very humble about what you know and keep to inside that circle of things that you know. There's plenty of good companies there. Don't worry. You're going to have lots to do. It's just make sure you know where the boundaries are. And that's, that's my worst failing, I think, as an investor is to slide into areas that I think I know about and then find out I didn't do my but homework. This is where we're so opposite because you like go barreling into it yeah. and I'm like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, I just, I'm totally freaked. I just put myself on the hook for a quarter million dollars or something. What was it with JD? I don't even know how much it was. It's 20 bucks a share times 10,000. So I'm on the hook, less three bucks. So I'm on the hook for about 170,000 bucks. You did like an options thing? Yeah, for JD. And I can tell you, I'm not done with my homework. And as soon as I did that, I went, oh, shoot. See, that's practice shares. Those are practice, you did practice shares. shares. I did practice shares <laughs> with $170,000. Well, you got to do whatever works for you. If you guys haven't read the book, Invested, um, I was totally freaked out about buying my first stocks, companies, and like just, just had this emotional block. And I thought, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to buy like a small number of shares so that I can practice this and I'll just treat it like it's money that's gone. Like I just bought a lesson essentially. So how much would I spend on a lesson? I was like, I'd spend like a few hundred dollars. That's enough for me to feel it. That's a lot for me to like, I'd think about that, but it's not so much that I'm not gonna do it. So I told you I was gonna do this <laughs> and you were like, You've completely ignored everything I've taught you. How dare you? So insulted personally that I would do such a thing. And I was like, I'm not investing. Like, I wasn't investing. I was assuming that the money was gone. Maybe it'd go to zero. I don't even care. It was about trying it out. So he was like, how dare you? And then I was like, whatever. And then I went off and did it. And it was terrifying, exactly as terrifying as I had thought it to be, but in like different ways. So it was really good practice. And finish this whole thing. It's like, I, I won't tell you the whole story, but I like. Oh, I love the part about you putting in the trade. What's that? I put well, in you the put the trade in and oh, nothing and I, happened. That's She's right. like, oh, what have I done wrong? Oh my gosh, what have I done wrong? I, and well, I pressed the button and nothing happened. The market wasn't open. <laughs> markets open. <laughs> so I sat there and I texted my friends like Alexis who's here and I folded some laundry and then the market opened half an hour later <laughs> and I pressed that same button again and 
nothing happened. Like, I kind of thought there would be this, like, confetti appear on my computer screen and be like, you are now an owner. And I was, none of that happened. And so I finally had to, like, go to some weird little spot on my brokerage, and it just said, like, the stock. And it just said the amount. And that's it. It was so anticlimactic. <laughs> Except that then I realized I owned it. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh my gosh, I got to see what the price is. Because I probably like totally made money already. And so then I downloaded these stocks apps onto my phone. And I downloaded three of them because I thought I'm going to be using these a lot. And I need to know exactly which ones are the best ones. So I'll try them all out. And clicked on the first one and it was like next to me on the desk and it started, like the price started going, I can't remember which happened first, up, I think. And I was like, I am incredible at this. <laughs> Investing is my life, like all my practice has led me to this moment. And then it started going down. And this was all by like five cents. So it went down like five cents and I was like, I should have waited five minutes. <laughs> How could I not have known that? I mean, I should have known what was wrong with me. I have to figure out what I did wrong. And then it popped back up and I was just like, oh my God, I am going freaking insane. <laughs> and I closed the app and I put all of them into, like you can nest apps, you know, on an iPhone. And I put them all into a box and I called it torture. <laughs> and I put it at the back of my phone and I still have it there and I have not touched it since that day. I have not opened a stocks app since that day. But I still keep it. I thought about deleting it the other day, and then I thought, no, I want to keep it as a reminder to myself of when I went insane. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such was great good. practice. And then when I bought for real, it was just like, I'm awesome at this. I'm like, I know what buttons I to this. press. I know when the market's open. <laughs> <laughs> but you told me crazy don't ever forget that i know and then i it, then i thought about it a while and i realized that for years i've been buying small chunks of things to really get focused right austin's back there going like and hey, we're focused now he's my my i hired him as my analyst and it's like i just bought one hundred seventy thousand dollars of that thing we're not done working on you better oh, get yeah, to that it. was that was the whole point exactly yeah yeah it's like you buy something and all of a sudden you know if you knew enough about you that company, know immediately. you know immediately. I'm up here, I hit that button, there's $28,000. Oh, shit. <laughs> we might not be done with this yet. So this is a big spur, this idea of practice shares, I realized, is something I've been doing forever. And then I looked at Buffett's portfolio and realized he's been doing the same thing. He, he takes a little piece of things you can see him in there. You start looking at his portfolio. It's got all these companies in there. And he owns a 0.0001% of the portfolio. Wait, what? Yeah, he's got practice shares. Absolutely. <laughs> and guess what else? This he is uses, the greatest day of my life. I'm so uses, excited. <laughs> he uses Wexler and that other guy. What's it? It's Todd Wexler and Ted something. Ted Combs, right? Ted Combs. Todd Combs, Ted Wexler. Which one? It's Todd Combs. Thank you. Todd Combs, Ted Wexler. I think Buffett uses them for practice shares. They're out there investing $10, $15 billion, and when they start going on, somebody takes a look at it and goes, huh, because they were buying Apple first. And then he jumped in. You can see it's Apple, 5 million shares. And then when Buffett gets a hold of it, Apple, 240 million shares, right? <laughs> Big difference. And he's using those guys for practice shares, swear to God. Heck yeah. Yeah. And you can see that in any guy's portfolio. Look at Guy Spear, look at Monash. They got little tiny dribbles of a couple of things in there that they're looking at because once you get money in the game, there's, there's Nicholas Taleb's a favorite author of mine. He wrote Fooled by Randomness, Black Swan, uh, Anti-Fragile, and he's written a new book called Skin in the Game where oh, he's, arguing, he's arguing that basically if you don't have skin in the game, you're a different person than when you do have skin in the game. And therefore, having regulators, bureaucrats, legislators who have no skin in the game. They, get, they do not get burned when whatever they've done hurts other people is completely wrong. That you have to have people with skin in the game doing, making the decisions about stuff. So 
having skin in the game, right? We could call practice gears our skin in totally, the game. Totally, totally. And then they get your attention, and then you really start digging. So strongly recommend practice shares. It's another thing I learned from my daughter here. Well, I, to be fair to you, you were doing it. You just didn't connect. Didn't, I didn't connect it, that it was not, like, the same. It is, it is different. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's take another one. Hi, uh, I'm Kyle Hoff from Northern California. Uh, my question is about company age. So some companies are young, or maybe not young, but let's say their IPO is young. Um, I'm talking like less than 10 years of data. Do we still take a chance on these companies, even though they don't have you know years and years and years of data through booms and busts and events and whatnot? You know, I'm just two two things about that. Can I take this one? Please. Okay. Two things about that. First, you said that. They've got an IPO, so they're young in terms of the IPO, but they could be old in terms of their history. So dig for the history, because Google had a pretty good track record before it went public, right? So it wasn't 10 years, but it had a lot of data behind it. So I felt pretty comfortable buying it shortly after its IPO. Um, Chipotle Mexican Grill didn't have 10 years when I started buying it. They had like seven, six or seven, but it was such a strong track record. It was so consistent. I felt pretty comfortable doing it, um, first thing. Second thing is, there's part of the portfolio that I call risky business. You guys remember that from rule number one? That little 10% part of the portfolio is really a, a, a good thing to have. So that's where it goes when it's, you don't have 10 years, you don't even have five years, but you really understand the business well. If there's something missing out of the equation that we look at, um, it goes into the risky business portfolio if you really want to buy it. And buying those kind of companies is really fun. I mean, that's, there's a lot of potential upside, you know, that's what you can make, it can make you a lot of money. But you have to keep it limited to a small part of the portfolio. All right? Hey, I'm Christy. I'm from New York City. And I've been listening to your Invested podcast for about a year. And I recently read the book, Invested. Um, and my question's for you, Danielle. So over the last few years, couple years, when you've been learning this and practicing, what's the best part about uh, the process of learning to invest um, in this way for you? And then what's still difficult about it or hard for you, if anything? Oh, that is a good question. Um, this is super cheesy, but I'll say it anyway. The best part has been working with my dad. Oh, honey. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this has been, I've, I've talked to a bunch, I, mean, I haven't been around too long today yet, but already I've talked to a bunch of you about um, how it's brought people in your family together to do investing together. And that's certainly a way that I never expected to connect with my dad in a million years. But it's maybe because of that, maybe because it was so unexpected. I don't know. Maybe it brought us, it certainly brought us together in a very different way than anything else we do. Yep. So that's I agree. been really sweet. I agree. That's it for me too. It's like being able to work with your kid and see the changes that they're going through and and then to write a book together and write a book together that, that did well and we get to do TV and we get the whole enchilada with your kid. is unbelievable. I mean, that's just such a thrill. Yeah. I, it goes back to my, my first book. I was walking I was walking uh, down the street. I wanted to show the kids the book in the bookstore. You know, that was like super thrill. So we went to Barnes and Noble and there's the stack of books from rule one. They were pushing the book and I got both girls there. And, and then uh, we walked down the street and got to the corner. And as we started to walk across the street, a guy turned in front of us in a car and stopped in the sidewalk and rolled his window down and said, fill town. <laughs> and both the girls were there looking at me like, whoa. <laughs> And then, and then he, just, he just drove away. Just drove away. <laughs> just, just drove right away. And, and Elena looked at me and she went, Dad, you have fan. <laughs> and now, honey, you have fan. <laughs> it's really good. I don't know if I have fan. I mean, that was a whole other level. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's been amazing. And just the... the the, the, the people I've talked to about other family relationships, and I mean, I just gave a TED talk about family relationships and how they can get so involved with money and how it changes the way we feel. So it's been, it's really been opening for me. By the way, how do we find your TED talk? Um, on YouTube, if you put in 
TEDx Danielle Town. TEDx Danielle Town. The power of being invested. It was. It's really good. It's. It's really good. Thank it was you. pretty intense and very personal, and I liked it a lot. Very good TED Talk. But I want to answer the rest of your question because I think for investing in particular, the best part is discovering how many companies there are that I engage with on a daily basis and have opinions about that I never noticed. And this whole thing has really created kind of like a 3D view of the world where I see companies and people and services and products in a completely different way than I did before. And it's really cool. It's really amazing. I mean, you're in New York City and you get Uber and then you go over to Whole Foods and then you go over to WeWork. You know, I mean, it's crazy. And then you go home and you're like, oh, I want to find out about that. And the next thing you know, because of the internet, we can all find out who runs these companies and what they're doing. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. The worst thing is the freaking numbers still. I cannot, like, I have I have all my methods and all my tricks, and it is still hard for me, and I still don't feel like it's natural in any way, and I, I think that's just something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. that's my challenge. For somebody else, it's um, reading annual reports, which I actually like. They have a lot of legal language, and I find that enjoyable, which is super weird, and <laughs> for somebody else, it's figuring out management, and I think that's not so horrible and so I know for me, you're it's way numbers. better at that than I am um, and you're way better at reading 10ks the numbers I like so yeah. we all got different strengths you know don't think just because one part of this is feels awkward to you that you can't do this we all have the, that about something in it you know absolutely good point it's not always it doesn't it doesn't necessarily click amazingly and that's life an award to give out hold on let me make sure yeah, let's make sure. I asked you earlier, silly. I know, but I've been spending money. Okay. So let me preface this a little bit. For the invested book, we did a pre-order contest, which I probably, if you guys listen to the podcast, you heard us um, promoting. For people who pre-ordered the book, you could then send in um, proof that you bought it, and you would get uh, entered in a contest to come to this very workshop and win your first $1,000 to invest. And... We have the winner right here in front of us, Tim Latouche, who's right there. Tim, come on up here. Oh, there oh it is. yeah, that's awesome. Good job, man. <laughs> and here it is. Thousand bucks, buddy. Well, maybe we should say goodbye to our podcast. Okay. Okay. Ready? I think we're kind of done. Okay. So I guess it's time to go play. I guess so. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.